0: I have two announcements for you. The first one is this. Uh, Starting in January, we're actually going to start the second half of the book of Acts. If if you were here four or five years ago, we did the first half of the book of Acts that followed Peter uh, through the end of Acts chapter 12. And I kept saying, one day we're going to come back and do the second part of Acts. We are actually going to do that now, and it only took you know five or six years to get there. Uh, When we do that, though, uh, we're actually going to do this thing called Element University or Element U., and what Element U is, every once in a while we'll do a midweek class, it'll be on Wednesday nights, that's designed to teach you a little bit deeper some of the stuff that, we, that we're talking about. And what we're doing with this one is, the Element U is going to start on January 29th, and it's going to take really the understanding of the gospel throughout the Old Testament, and what that unfolding thing looked like week by week by week. Uh, And at the end of those nine weeks, hopefully you'll get a good idea of the gospel idea that Paul had when he shared with these people throughout the book of Acts. So I'll take you to a deeper understanding of what that looks like and what Paul was actually proclaiming from his mindset of being a Hebrew. And so that might help you understand Acts a little bit better. And then uh, in the fall, we're going to do another one that's only five weeks long. And what that one's going to do is have you look out in the culture around us and begin to understand the cultural metaphors that we now use and uh, the different doctrines that our culture holds versus where the church holds and the places we can speak to one another in the midst of that to be able to talk about the good news of God's rescue. And maybe we could begin to be a little bit like Paul, to step out in the places that we are at and spread the good news in ways that actually make sense in the midst of culture we are, uh, never diminishing the gospel at all, but being able to speak to it in the cultural context that we find ourselves. And I know none of you wrote that down, but just have it in the back of your mind. Uh, January 29th, we'll start a nine-week course on that that kind of dovetails into what we talk about on Sunday mornings. The other thing I have to tell you is this. I got this email this week from somebody who was like, hey, can you make sure you hold me four tickets for Star Wars so they don't sell out? I'm like, it's element. Everybody's last minute. We still got over half of them left, so we got plenty of Star Wars tickets. But what happens is, well, you guys are going to wait till that last day and be like, "Oh, I need one." And at that point, they might all be gone. So you should get one. There. Uh, we're going to Renaissance Theater for Star Wars. We're going to watch it opening day weekend, uh, December twenty second, Sunday, two fifty in the afternoon. You can grab the tickets from the Welcome Center. I'm going to hand out prizes. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. <sighs> we're going to finish the Book of Ecclesiastes today. All right, uh, so. If you are new, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes and questions to reflect on what we talk about today. If you have a smartphone, though, you can download this app. It's called UVersion. Once you download it, it just says Bible. And you open that, and you go to more and then events, and then we will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get sermon notes versus questions, announcements, and everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 11, and it says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust the words that you have said enough, that we would be vulnerable before you to expose the places in our lives of our our limps, and the places that we have run from you, and the places that we have looked to our own wisdom under the sun, and not trusted you for what you have said and that you would uh, bring us to yourself in, in new ways, so that you would be glorified as we, as your people, will begin to live in the joy that you provide to us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is uh, Ecclesiastes uh, Week 32, so short 32 weeks. That's what it is. If you have ever watched the Olympics, they have these gymnasts, right? And at the end of the routine, they hop off the bars or the rings, and they flip around, and they land, and they go. And they call that a dismount why four of you watch the olympics okay they call it a dismount this is solomon's dismount and i actually think it's great if it's not great, it's my fault. If it is good, it's all him and the things that he says. And so when Solomon finishes his book, he's going to kind of conclude with this essential admonition that wisdom begins with the respect for God, which leads to repentance, and that sends us into God's arms where there is joy. And this is only going to happen as it stems out of a vulnerability that we can come to before God as we recognize our condition under the sun and then God's rescue of us. So the wisest man who's ever lived besides Jesus tells us again that wisdom is not found in our own good but in God's hands. So open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I think too often we read a book like Ecclesiastes and fail to see how vulnerable Solomon made himself throughout the course of the book. Much more vulnerable than any of us ever really want to be. And he's repeatedly pointed out his own folly, his own failures, the things that he has done that has run away from God to help us to grow as readers. So he starts this last bit, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8. He says, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, vanity of vanity is vapor. It is meaningless, and he begins and ends Ecclesiastes kind of the exact same way, that everything under the sun, focused on the temporary, focused on ourselves, will end up being meaningless. Now today we actually call this literary technique inclusion. That's where you begin and end something with the same words. And Solomon's using these words as a, as a multi-purpose metaphor to express the futility of life in a fallen world. Vanity, vapor, meaningless, under the sun. And taken literally, it means that life is really impossible for us to grasp on our own, and before we know it, our lives are gone like you're exhaling a breath on a cold morning and it vanishes into thin air. Samuel Beckett was an Irish avant-garde playwright. Uh, He once wrote a 35-second play and called it Breath. How it works is the curtain goes up and there's a pile of trash on the stage. It's illuminated by a light. The light dims then brightens and and then goes completely out. There's no words. There's no actors. The soundtrack for it is a human cry, then a... Inhaled breath, and an exhaled breath, another human cry, and it's over. Imagine you paid money to go see this. How upset you would be, right? But that is the idea of what breath is like, of what our lives are like. They are just a breath. Psalm 39, verse 5. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as mere breath. And that's the understanding. Under the sun, our lives are short because when we focus on ourselves, it all becomes meaningless. Philip Reichen comments that we should not think of Solomon here as only trying to be negative about this by coming back to it. Because he says he does bring us back to the same place where we began, but we are not the same people. Honestly, if you have been through Ecclesiastes for these weeks, hopefully you are not the same person as when you started the book. The book is meant to open our eyes to what God is doing versus what we always try to do and show us how vain life is without God and how these words should strike us now with so much greater force. And by the end of the book, we should almost feel like you have a relationship with Solomon because he's been so open and vulnerable and honest with all of us because that's the only way true relationship begins to come about is by our honesty and vulnerability with one another. And I think it's brilliant in how Solomon does this throughout the book and exposes all of his flaws and all of his failures and that He will all then show us how God intends for us to live with one another in a way that grows us in relationship with God and others. Uh, This whole idea of being vulnerable under the sun, we're going to talk about that idea a lot. The word vulnerable comes from this Latin root, which means to hurt or to wound. Uh, John Ortberg once said that vulnerability is a gift, but he said it's a gift that nobody really wants, which is kind of funny. Henry Cloud, when he talks about it, he, he points out that our tear ducts are in our eyes. I mean, our eyes need them to water, but he said it's interesting that God puts the place where we cry tears right there. He could have put him in our armpits. He could have put them between our toes or nowhere at all. But God puts those tear ducts when you cry right there out in front, right where most people don't even want them, where everybody can see them. And so he says, we are not vulnerable by accident. We are vulnerable by design. In the Old Testament, there's a story of Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, he's a whiner, uh, he's a deceiver, he's a mama's boy, and he ends up in this place where he tricks his dad and his dumb brother into getting this birthright, this favor from his dad. And his dad wanted to go to Esau, the other brother. So he tricks them and gets this. And now when he gets it, his brother Esau finds out, and Esau is like, I'm going to kill Jacob for taking my birthright. And Esau can do it, because if you like Star Wars, Esau looked like Chewbacca but covered in red fur, because he was like a big red Chewbacca. And so Jacob learns that his brother wants to kill And he runs off. You can listen to this in our Genesis series. It's online. But God will do an amazing work over 40 years in Jacob's life. And Jacob ends up being wealthy and successful, almost beyond comprehension. And then after 40 years, after God does all this work, he says, now go back to your brother. I'm going to send you that direction. And so the night before he goes back and meets his brother Esau again, God shows up. And he gets down on Jacob's level. And he wrestles with Jacob all night long. And Jacob wants the blessing of God. And he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to be here. I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow. And so God does bless him. But before God is done with him, he touches his hip, wrenches Jacob's hip out of socket, and Jacob will walk with a limp the rest of his life. Now so the very next day he goes to meet his brother. Genesis 33 verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Why does Esau do the running? Most likely because Jacob couldn't because he was limping. And in the end, it may have been that Jacob's limp did more to soften Esau's heart to prepare the way for this restoration and intimacy than Jacob's success ever could have. That limp was a given as a gift by God to bring restoration. And so Jacob wears that limp like we have our tear ducts on the outside and that vulnerability can bring restoration. And I can almost see Solomon weeping tears as he writes the book of Ecclesiastes because he really is exposing himself as the king to so much ridicule by showing us all of his limps. And he becomes so vulnerable. So let me walk through this and show you what this looks like. Chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. "'Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge.'" weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So everything that he has said to us in Ecclesiastes, he has thought about and he's laid it down so that we would grow. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight and of rightly he wrote words of truth. This is the idea that wisdom is found through life experience, through teachers with life experience. Some people have lots of life experience and they never learn anything and keep doing the same thing. That is bad. We should not do their mistake. Solomon, on the other side, exposes all of his folly and calls it for what it is, foolishness, temporary, under the sun, meaningless, so that we could learn from it. And our goal should be to take wisdom we have learned and then impart that to other people. I don't know if you journal, uh, but this is like Solomon's journal of all the things that he learned written down for us. And what we see is that the people in the Bible, they are messed up people. And hopefully in the end we get to see their growth as God comes and does restoration because God is the one that brought him through everything and God can bring you and I through things as well. It is honesty, it's transparency, it's seeking life counsel from those around us who maybe have gone through some really hard things. Uh, There's a lot of people around us who have had metaphorical bloody car wrecks of their lives and they come out the other side and they grow and they learn and those are the people we want to get wisdom from, those who actually learn from the car wrecks. And you ask them about business decisions and Christianity and marriage and what all of that looks like, because they're the ones who have grown through it, and maybe we can learn not to make the same mistakes that they did. Oftentimes, wisdom is found and learned only through painful correction. Uh, verse 11 says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the, are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. At this time, goads was this piece of wood, and they had some nails sticking through it. And if you were a shepherd, and your and your animals kept running off, you'd walk them, and you'd, and you'd whack them with that thing. Not like big old long nails to kill them, but enough to be like, yow, and they'd kind of move back in. Now, in this, we're told that God is like our shepherd. And that, maybe your life makes sense now. God's whacking me. yeah. works. <laughs> in a sense, yes, but God's not trying to kill us. God is trying to correct us. And at times, we'll feel the sting of a bad decision, and we're supposed to learn from that and move to a different direction. Some people are smart, and they listen. You can listen to someone like Solomon and get like a shortcut, but most people don't listen. And we take the long, hard, painful road under the sun. Again, that word shepherd is capitalized there because almost everybody agrees that shepherd he's talking about is God. That God is doing the goading. God is making us vulnerable to trust him. Verse 12 he says, My son, beware of anything beyond these words, meaning, listen to what I have said. Of the making of many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. In the ancient world there are royal libraries full of scrolls, we would say, you know, like books, but today there's more than a million new books published every single year. And every single book is full of man made human wisdom that says, I know what the answer is. Listen to what I say. And it's so what the Bible says is true. Of the making of many books, there is no end. And sometimes you'll study things and it will wear you out, and you'll be like, this is vanity. Under the sun it's terrible i believe you should read books but you must always remember that there is human wisdom and man-made philosophy they're always temporary under the sun i think the think of back to all the books that i've written down the history of the world and what kind of state our world is still in today how well do we learn from human wisdom written in books Yeah, not not well, not well. We're still jacked up. This is why Solomon says that learning by itself is not the answer. We must be a people who live in the wisdom that God provides. In this book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis... He describes a man from the suburbs of hell who spends all of his life seeking the truth, or so he says. And so this guy wanders somewhere near the borders of heaven where the Spirit of God by grace invites him in. Now this isn't C.S. Lewis's theology, okay, because it's horrible theology if it was. This is metaphor to help us understand who we are. So this guy gets close, he's invited in, the Spirit of God says this, I can promise you no scope for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them. Meaning, and if you say, yeah, I perverted the things you've given me, that's being vulnerable before God. I will bring you to the land, uh, not of questions, but of answers, and you shall see the face of God. Now, the man himself is so focused upon himself, he's not ready to give up his own quest for all of his own answers. He doesn't want to accept anybody's conclusions, even God's. And so he says this, we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? So the Spirit of God says this, listen, once you were a child and once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you found them. Become that child again even now. But the man refuses because he's too focused on himself. When I became a man, I put childish things away. And the conversation will end suddenly as the guy remembers that he's got a study group in hell and he's got to get off and run to it, which is kind of funny. But it goes to what Solomon says. It goes to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 7, that many people are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. There are so many books out there and so much man-made wisdom that seeks to run from what God said and who God said we are under the sun. And every author thinks, if I could just get published, well, then all change the world. People say to me sometimes, hey, you should write a book. I did. Nobody read it. I'm the fool that Solomon talks about, right? On Amazon, there are literally books for everything. There is even a book on nudist arsonist cults. Nobody reads it apparently. I think it's some more copies if they called it where do you hide the matches. But they don't, you know. No listens to me. I believe you should read. I really do. But sometimes people hate reading because they're reading the wrong book. It's like the first five minutes of a bad date. It's like, this is not going to get any better. Find something good. I, one of the elders, one of our GC leaders, could probably recommend something. But understand, just because something is in a book doesn't make it true, helpful, or right. And if you have only so much time during the day, I would recommend you start reading your Bible. I can give you a good place to start in that. Solomon is trying to go to a conclusion that says wisdom is not found and manufactured by man. It's given by God to us so we trust what he says in the eternal versus our own temporary lives. And wisdom will come, not through all these books, not that you shouldn't read, but wisdom will come ultimately from God, by how we understand who He is. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And whenever you talk about fear in the Bible, you always got to give a disclaimer of what that actually means. And so we talked about this in Ecclesiastes before, and Proverbs last year, but in the Old Testament, there's essentially a couple words for fear. One means terror, one means reverence. And In the Old Testament it's not hard to tell which word is being used in the good kind and the bad kind of fear in the new testament you got to look at context but and then we talked about how when we fear god properly we understand this value and reverence for who he is and when we have that there's a relationship that comes out of that because we value him above everything else his eternalness versus our temporariness tim keller writes this the fear of god the holy fear is an inward condition of awe and amazement before the glory and wonder and the power and the grace of this god See, we understand that God is a God to be feared in one sense because of this awe and reverence, but God created everything. God is, I think if we got a picture of who God is, we would just be undone by that. If, if you get a call in the middle of that 2 a.m. and someone's got a voice scrammer like, I'm coming for you, you would strap on your diaper and get ready for Armageddon, right? Because It's because someone freaked you out. But imagine the God who created the universe actually getting a picture of that. I mean, we do have awe and reverence for Him, but the fear of God is a real thing because God is holy. And it's meant to change us, to be vulnerable and honest of who we are before Him. We are told in studies that 81% of people in America believe in God slash religion of some sort. 77% of that 81% affiliate in some way with Christianity. Doesn't look like three quarters of our country fears God. No, not at all, because facts don't make Christians. Following Jesus and understanding the gospel is what makes Christians. Many times we have more fear in our lives of not being popular or of our boss or the person we're dating or our spouse or spiders or bugs. And many times sin will just run rampant in our lives, but our struggle is more fearing God than anything else. When we properly fear God, our relationship with Him becomes more important than anything else in our lives. And this proper relationship comes out in a way where we live in obedience to what God has said. And obedience ceases to be this terrible word that our culture hates. We understand what God has done to rescue us. His love first given to us, so we would then live in love towards Him. And it changes everything. I think you could sum it all up. So far, it would be wisdom is found in simple faith that obeys God. Again, think of Solomon, right? He's a guy. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Some dudes today have like a thousand downloaded videos or pics off the internet. Solomon gossiped. He got drunk daily. He's an imbecile that tried forever to justify his actions until he gave up trying to fulfill himself under the sun. And he becomes vulnerable and he saw his folly and saw God's love for him and he began to listen to what God actually said when the eternal steps into his life under the sun. The verse says, fear God, do what he says. You don't really got to wonder what that means. God's a good dad who loves his kids and he wants to lead them to true and real life. Why? Because kids are dumb. Kids are dumb. You got to tell kids things like gravity is real. As they climb a bunch of stuff, I was like three, four, five—I don't remember. a Long time ago, but I, I had cowboy boots. I don't know why I had the cowboy boots, on, but I climbed on the roof of our house, and and I and I get to the chimney, and I'm the chimney's about that big, and I got my feet dangling on that chimney, and I'm thinking, how in the world does Santa get down this thing? All right? I'm just totally curious. So I'm thinking, I'm and I'm ready to go. I'm like, if he can make it, I can make it. And I'm like, do, 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 you know, I don't have cowboy boots anymore, by the way. But so I'm looking at him, getting ready to go, and then I don't know, me my brother told on me, and my mom comes outside. What are you doing up there? And I'm all. I'm gonna hop in the hole to see how sand is. Get down from the roof. I'm coming. I'm gonna hop in. I mean, me at the bottom. You know, we'll figure it. He goes, it's this big, right? I'm gonna be the, the little boy in the well is what's gonna to happen to me. And she's like, get off the roof. And I go, I just wanna know. Get it. So I came off the roof and then she spanked me. She, with the goads, because she's moving to repentance. But I don't know why. I'm just curious to Anyway, but kids are dumb, right? They don't listen to anything. You gotta say, the toilet is not a swimming pool. I mean, you gotta got say things. And they throw a fit. And if you're a parent parent, at times, you know, kids are going to argue about some stupid thing that will destroy them. But you don't let them do it. That's us with God all the time. It's us with God. God is smarter than we are. That's not meant to be a shocking statement. He just is. And we should listen. It's like a relationship with a good dad. God wants to lead us into his grace. And too many of us are like Solomon. And we are miserable. And we keep running after our own sin. And it never gets any better. We just keep doing it over and over and over. And it's a waste of time. Keep it simple. Solomon says, who is God? What does he say? Do that. That's wisdom. Chapter 12, verse 14. This is how he ends the book. Okay, He says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the kind of the dismount. You know, fear God, do what he says. There is a judgment that is eternal. Right? That that's what he says. That's his dismount. Let me put this in a way where I don't sugarcoat this at all, okay? We are people who many times we place ourselves in judgment of others. We put ourselves in the place of God, even though we don't want to be judged. But I will tell you this. Everyone doesn't go to heaven and get cotton candy. Some people here today are not all right. Some of you are like Solomon at the height of his folly, and You're focusing on yourself under the sun. And you hide all your limbs so nobody else can see it. And if you don't know Jesus, you have set yourself up as a false god. And one day you will have to take on the real God at judgment and you will not win. If God has the strength and the courage to pour out His wrath on sin, on His Son who willingly goes to the cross for us, He will not stop and we say, but I'm so important, you can't do this to me, how dare you? We keep thinking there is no judgment for sin because God is patient. In 2 Peter 3 9, the NIV says this The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's why our heads don't explode when we do something stupid, because God is patient with us. God does care. God is involved. God cares enough that he said what sin brings in our lives, and he cares enough to show us the scriptures what happens when we run after sin under the sun every day. But God also provides a way for all of us to be redeemed. The reason anyone is saved is because by the grace of God that we can never pay back. And this is why, for us, it is so important for us to understand Solomon, coming to this place of vulnerable honesty. And when when we do, we speak the truth before God of who we are and who God is. We speak about our past actions and our lives and realize that we are not the answer under the sun. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but everybody has a limp, like Jacob, like Solomon. Sometimes we deny it and don't want other people to think we have it all together, but we don't. For you, this could be a divorce, a disability, a body type, an addiction, a history of abuse given or received. It could be panic attacks. It could be a personal illness or aloneness. And what if that never goes away? Well, just like Solomon and Ecclesiastes, I think that God wants to use it for His glory and our good. And it's so weird that so often we'll admire vulnerability in people around us, but we don't want to be vulnerable ourselves. It's why we keep trying to keep others and God away from our hearts and who we really are. Madeline Langle wrote this book called A Wrinkle in Time. Uh, she also said this. She said, to grow, up is to, accept, to grow up is to accept vulnerability. To be alive is to be vulnerable. Uh, Elizabeth Gondolfer wrote this book called The Power of Vulnerability and Love. And in it she talks about the incarnation and Jesus coming at Christmas. And this is what she writes. The incarnate life of divine love begins in a pool of blood. The blood origins of the incarnation remind us that the invulnerable nature of divine love becomes not only possible but also vulnerable in the crimson waters of Mary's womb. Oh, such beautiful words. It's that Jesus becomes a man. He will only becomes vulnerable for us. He is beaten, betrayed. He is killed by a creation he loved more than we will ever imagine. Why? To rescue us from the judgment that Solomon speaks about at the end of Ecclesiastes. Do you know that researchers now tell you that babies learn to fake cry by the time they're six months old when nothing's even really wrong? Yeah, you know that apparently, okay? Think about this. The next time you think that human beings are born moral and good and right, because the truth is we learn to lie before we can even speak. From the earliest age, we are people who learn to lie and, and front and misrepresent what's going on inside of us. But to actually have real intimacy with others and God himself, we got to learn to expose our weaknesses, our insecurity, our true selves, like Solomon. The whole point about redemption is that God wants to come and restore us to who we're meant to be as image bearers in the world, to break the chains that we have stuck to self. It kind of makes me wonder what happened to Solomon after he wrote Ecclesiastes. Like, what did his advisors start thinking about this, that he was so vulnerable and so open? Because when we get that way with other people, other people are going to start asking how we're doing. Maybe they'll pray for you or get involved in your life. And maybe you don't want people that involved in your life. Did Solomon's counselors now feel like they had the right to calm on all of his garbage and pray with him? I don't know. But I think if, if they did start to do that, he probably at this point wouldn't be upset about it. Because he began to understand the difference between what was under the sun versus what was actually eternal. Becoming vulnerable and honest is hard. And I think that Solomon realized it was the only key, though, to true and real life and real wisdom. Going back to the story we started with in the very beginning, you got Jacob and Esau. So Jacob's got this 40-year excursion. He's in this other place, you know, while God's growing him up and stuff. And one of the things that happens is he, is he falls in love with this girl named Rachel. Uh, Rachel's dad is named Laban. Rachel is beautiful. Everybody liked Rachel. She's funny. She's great. But Rachel has this older sister named Leah. And not anybody really liked Leah. Uh, Leah, uh, she probably wasn't that pretty. Uh, Leah will translate as cow. So when you watch Star Wars, Princess Cow, just think of that. Um, <laughs> But so you got this girl named Leah. Now, typically they would marry off the older daughter before they marry off the younger ones, but nobody wanted Leah. And so when Jacob shows up, he says, I will work seven years for the bride price for Rachel. That's what I'll do. And so Laban says, great, let's do that. So he works seven years for Rachel. Then his honeymoon night, he drinks a little too much, goes to his tent to consummate his marriage with Rachel. And what Laban did is he switched Leah for Rachel. And, and Jacob consummates his marriage with Leah instead of Rachel because Laban thought it's the only way to get his daughter married off. Now, imagine growing up in a culture where your worth as a woman is defined by your physical appearance. Can you imagine that, ladies? Right? Right? Nothing to do with your soul, just your looks. Not having the right body face or the right, or the right body type can make you vulnerable. I go to the dermatologist every six months, and they burn all these rough patches off of my face. It always makes me wonder how Scottish people ever survived in the wild. Um, but... And so for a week, I'm explaining to everybody why my face looks like melted pizza because it's burned everywhere everywhere in this. Imagine, imagine you grow up in a culture, though, and your only dream is to get married and have children because that is going to give you value and worth in that culture. I mean, I may have the problem for a week, but Leah had it every single day of her life. And imagine a father that the only way to get you married is to fool your sister's fiancé into marrying you by mistake. I think Leah probably wakes up in the morning, you know, looking at Jacob, hi, you know, hoping that maybe Jacob would understand because Jacob himself is somebody who had to lie and deceive to to try and get his own father's blessing, but Jacob doesn't. And he freaks out when he sees Leah. Do you understand how painfully honest all of the Bible is? And so many people want to point to the scriptures and say, oh, terrible. That's a terrible book. Nobody should read that book. The whole Bible, God is showing us under the sun who we are without him and what we do. Jacob will say, I'll work another seven years for Rachel. He gets Rachel right away, but Rachel's the one he really wanted. And what you see in Genesis is God keeps coming back into this family story. Genesis 29, verse 31 says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. And in the story, Leah becomes fruitful like crazy, like crazy, thinking that now Jacob will love me. When the whole point in this was that God saw her. And God cared about her. And Leah maybe many times didn't even realize that. It was in her vulnerability and pain that God cared about her and loved her. This means for all of us, if you're in a place where you think you aren't good enough or pretty enough or smart enough or feel like a failure, the Lord sees. The Lord knows and the Lord cares. It doesn't mean everything is easy. It means that he will walk with you in those places through those things. What is interesting is Leah will eventually give birth to a son named Judah. Judah becomes the patriarch of this tribe called Judah. Jesus is a descendant of Leah, And Judah when he comes. Now when we read this line, that God will bring into judgment every deed. This is totally true. Okay? There are deeds that we have done that separate us from God and one another. We run away, rebel, and kind of do our own thing. And judgment comes to all of us. But here is the beauty of what God does when he steps into the temporary to bring us to the eternal: is that there was judgment, but it was at the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, on the cross, all of my limps and all of my pain and all of the rebellion and running from God that I have done was taken upon Jesus. The place where I deserve to die, Jesus died for me. He took my place. See, as Christians and Christianity, we still believe that there's judgment, but it was done in Jesus. And too many people are under this delusion that we are better than we are or God is less than he is. But when we become honest, we can be a people who realize the good news. And that is this whole existential hangover can be over because this life is about Jesus. And a wise life results from knowing the love of Jesus and responding by loving him back, which is really the essence of relationship. And and maybe that's really the point of the entire book of Ecclesiastes, right? Intimacy with God is for those who limp. Intimacy with God. And being able to live in wisdom is by recognizing all the places that we have run away from him. It's for people who are rejects and those who are pretended and those who are willing now to look at their fakeness and own it. Because the scriptures are not a bunch of stories of unbroken people who have it all together. It's full of stories of people who are broken and the love of God that comes and heals them. Like it healed Solomon and like it can heal us. Because that's Solomon's story. And that's all of our story that when we're vulnerable enough to be honest about it. See, Jesus comes. He hungered, thirsted, wept, slept, bled, died in this vulnerability. He is betrayed, tried, beaten, executed, crucified. We even have this word called excruciating, right? Excruciating talks about our own pain. Excruciating comes from this root that meant to crucify. In Genesis 1 and 2, mankind lives in vulnerability with God. We're open with Him and, and all that. It's exquisite and beautiful. But then comes this thing called the fall where we rebel and we run away from God and we hide ourselves from him and from one another and it brings shame and pain and it's excruciating. But Jesus, Leah to Judah, comes Jesus and Jesus steps into our vulnerability and Jesus experiences our excruciating pain and invites us back into the exquisiteness of life with God again and that is our hope and it's the only hope that we have ever had under the sun that the eternal would step into our temporary to rescue us. And that is the understanding of the gospel, of God's rescue. That we are a people who are broken and we limp around all the time. We always think we know how to do everything better than God does. And we run away from him and we destroy ourselves. And what does God do? He steps into our lives under the sun and calls us back to himself to rescue us. This is the understanding that at the cross, Jesus took everything, all those judgments for all those things upon himself so we can then step out in new, restored, and redeemed life again. This is why every week we take you guys to communion. It's a reminder of what Jesus did to rescue us. It's, it's actually a place of vulnerability. You break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us, and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. But it's a vulnerable place to realize, yes, I do need the forgiveness and grace of Christ because I have run away from God and I want to be restored for what God for what God has actually done for me and we trust him in the midst of that. The van's going to come up. As I do, I'm going to invite you to communion and there's going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you're in a place today where you would like someone to pray with you because you have made your life about the temporary or you are walking around with a bunch of limps, you're always trying to hide and don't want anybody to know who you really are, They would love to pray with you about that. Maybe you've got a limp that you just now want to begin to acknowledge, but you want someone that will pray with you in the midst of that. They would love to do that. Understanding in our vulnerability who we are and what God has done. This is why we must understand that Christianity is not based upon men and what other people do around us. It is based upon a God who has stepped into our world under the sun to rescue us, to bring eternality back to his people, to restore us to a relationship with him by what he himself has done. This is the beauty of what restoration is meant to be for a people who love and follow Jesus. It's lives that are full and free that don't have to be focused on our failures or our faults. It is that all judgment was done at Jesus, at the cross, so we get to live in new and renewed freedom and life. We get to be those that Solomon looked for at the end of Ecclesiastes, I think, looking and hoping for something in his life. But it comes because Jesus has now come. And we get to live in the grace and the beauty of that rescue of us. And if you need prayer, they'd love to pray with you about that. Uh, There's offering boxes next to all the wall, next to all the doors, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is just part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response to what God has done. And there's some food and stuff outside. invite you to come back tonight to the agape meal. uh, Eat some chicken and bread and well, I guess there's Brussels sprouts or something like that too. We don't care about those, but you know, come and eat and take. Woo, okay, whatever you can have. Them all. Uh, take some sermon notes and maybe begin to ask some of these questions as you develop relationships with one another. You know, where are the places where you limp, but you don't want anybody to know that you're limping? You know, where where are the places that you hide from God? Where are the, where are the ways you can be vulnerable with one another in ways that reflect better the restoration that we have had from God? so we can begin to live out in this world in a way that touches the lives around us because of what God has first done in us, that we don't just keep it here for ourselves. We give it out to those around us because God calls us to be a people of rescue and redemption. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us of your goodness and grace so deep down in who we are that we'd begin to live out lives of brutal vulnerability and honesty about where we've been and what we've been through. And yet also be able to speak of your great rescue of us in the midst of that. That we wouldn't use our pain or our limps as reasons to push you aside from our lives. But we would see those things as ways you have come to us in the midst of our pain and offered us grace. That it would change our focus and our view of everything around us. The understanding of the good news of your rescue. Father, I ask that you would teach us to be a people who have a childlike faith in who you are, that we would listen to our dad, the things that you have said and the places that you lead. so that our lives would be found fully and completely in who you are. Father, if we are honest, so often we find so many reasons to run from your hope and your grace and your truth. But I ask that through the understanding of what we get out of the end of Ecclesiastes, that we'd also understand all the reasons that we could run directly into your arms. Because you have first loved us and you've come to us in our brokenness and rescued us because we can never rescue ourselves. Have us be those who place all that we are in you because of your great rescue and that all that we do be focused upon you and what you've done. And that would in turn change us to be a people who live out in this world in ways that reflect. Your great rescue and the joy that we now get to partake in because of your goodness. Father, we thank you for loving us and the miracle of our own restoration. I ask that you would continue to remind us of that by your spirit day by day. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.